told you last night I was out. I was out with Rach and a few friends. Um, we went to the Juneteenth celebration in Ypsilanti. I was really hoping to hear some really good bands. There was some good music. It was, it was like pretty low-key. I think by the time we get there, it was winding down a little bit, but it was just like a beautiful night. Really nice to be able to go out and celebrate with our community. And so what I'd like to do is something a little bit different this morning. This is where you're like, oh man, we do have somebody with a history degree as our pastor. <laughs> I'm going to tell the origin story of Juneteenth. And then next week, we're going to talk about reparations. So I, both Ken and I over the years have talked about reparations from the pulpit. I made a theological argument for it in the book that we co-wrote a few years ago. But it's been a little bit of time since we've actually done it. Um, here as a sermon, and I thought maybe Juneteenth would be a good prompt to revisit that and to continue to talk about the topic. And you might think, you know, why, why talk about Juneteenth at church? And here's how I think about it. You know, churches have been part of the myth-making of the American machine since colonial settlers stepped foot on the continent. You know, there's been white theologians and pastors over the centuries who created and upheld theologies that justified white supremacy, and those theologies took root in people and found expression in all kinds of things, like the genocide of the Native nations, slavery, lynchings, Jim Crow laws, and even in some of our national philosophies, Manifest Destiny and its offshoots of American exceptionalism, and I would put MAGA in there as well, because of the biblical apocalyptic language that has been employed in that. So Bible language has been wrapped around all of these things and more to justify the oppression of some to the benefit of others. And so I think it is only fitting and just that churches, and especially majority white churches like ours, be part of the truth-telling and part of the myth-unmaking of our shared history so that we can start to make a path toward healing. You know, Juneteenth just became a federal holiday two years ago. Um, and it was in part due to a lot of the grassroots organizing efforts, the championing of a woman named Opal Lee, who like made it sort of her life's mission to make that happen. She's 96 years old now and saw it through. This holiday has been celebrated by some black Americans for a lot longer than just these two years. And it's certainly been celebrated by black Texans for even longer, since 1865. And so if you don't know, Juneteenth commemorates the end of slavery. I also think that churches should talk about it. Because it's my guess, just speaking as a white Midwesterner, is that Juneteenth is probably hardly on the radar of a lot of white Americans. And I would even wager that a lot of my family back in Indiana doesn't know what it is. Sorry, Mom, if you're on there, but it's probably, <laughs> I'm guessing. Um, I have a degree in history. It was barely on my landscape of learning, just more like a little blip. And so I thought, let's talk about the story of Juneteenth together. So, I've got a little bit of a mind for dates. I know not everybody does, and that's okay. Civil War, 1861 to 65. You don't really need to remember that, but that kind of puts you approximately where we're at. I'm going to back up even a little bit further here into the early 1800s, and say maybe a long time ago, well, not so long ago, in a land maybe not so far away called Texas. It was under the control of Spain, who had colonized Mexico. And so Spain had really wanted to stake a claim in that space, but they had a problem. The area that we now call Texas wasn't empty. Who would know, right? People lived there. It had native occupants from several tribal nations, including from the Comanche Nation, which was a people who were known to be great warriors. 
And so as settlers from Spain and from Mexico and a few from the United States moved onto that land with Spain's blessing, the Comanche would attack them and raid them. And we can understand why. You know, a Comanche didn't like foreign governments displacing them from the land that they lived on and just giving it away to settlers. And so the Comanche raids were brutal and they were effective. They were making it unattractive for people to move there. And so Spain was like, okay, we've got to come up with some kind of way to entice more people to go settle there. So they came up with something called impresario grants. And so an impresario grant was Spain saying, okay, look, I will give you lots of land for free if you will take responsibility for recruiting a bunch of other people to help move to that land and settle it with you. Right, so free land if you can build a group of colonizers who will band together and defend the territory. So we now understand that this was a microcosm of what was going on all across the American continent, right, where land was stolen from native peoples by settlers who systematically killed them. And I think this is the number that, that is not always taught or doesn't sit, at least, is that it was tens of millions of people Right, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, she wrote an indigenous people's history of the United States that we read in our, our women's book group um, about a year ago. Um, she wrote that it's estimated that 90 million, big number, almost too big to even like conceive, 90 million native peoples were killed in the 16th and 17th centuries alone and that included both North and South America when they did those calculations. So the whole American continent here. But 90 million, and this is more than 100 years before what we're talking about here. Right? So that continued on. So the Comanche, they knew what was up. Right? They were fighting for survival. And we know from here they weren't wrong. So this entitlement to land and this violence associated with it was justified using Christianity. You see it over and over and over again in American documents and literature. Just pull out a couple of big ones. Thomas Paine. Does anybody kind of remember his name, the guy that wrote Common Sense, right? 1776. He's the first person that was kind of like widespread gathering people to, to foment revolution against Great Britain. He wasn't even that religious. He was considered a deist, much like Thomas Jefferson. In that, I went back and reread Common Sense. He was talking about how white settlers had been given a divine opportunity. And he said, like Noah, to rebuild the world. Right? We remember the story of Noah, right? That was part of his appeal. It was like this quote-unquote new world had been unoccupied and it was just sort of ripe for rebuilding. Or an even worse interpretation would be, oh, you know, like how God killed all the evil people to make space for Noah to go and build the world. So does that justify, this? Uh, there's like so much there, right? And all of that, I also think, is just a poor reading of the flood myth, um, to be clear. But in there, Payne's calling God the king of America. He's appealing to God's divine law, or you'd say, like, God's obvious order of things. And so white settlers, they spoke of themselves using this kind of language all the time. They talked about America being a city on a hill, echoing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, sent by divine authority to exert their domination over the land and the people to be a shining example of divine blessing. All right, city of Austin, Texas. You've heard of it? South by Southwest, UT Austin. It's supposed to be like one of the coolest places to live down there. I always want to like get into a Texas accent when I start talking about it. I just, I'll try not to do that here. My apologies to Evan who lived in Texas. Um, 
Stephen Austin uh, was who Austin, Texas is named after. So this is 40 years before the Civil War. Stephen Austin inherited one of those impresario grants from his dad to go and settle part of East Texas. We'll just note here, East Texas is a really big place, but it is generally the more fertile, uh, sort of hilly, tree-lined area of Texas. And so the, yeah, the area that he was offered was exceedingly fertile. It had a really long growing season, so it was good for growing cotton. And it also had access, at least reasonable access, to the Gulf of Mexico for trade, right? So to Galveston, to the port of Houston. And so it meant money. And all Stephen Austin had to do was to convince some other white settlers to come with him and they could defend that territory together. So he did that. I just got distracted because I saw Teresa Reimer, who I love over there. I'm sorry, she and her husband are living in Suriname. Hi, Teresa. Okay, Stephen Austin, he gathered 300 families and they all packed up to move with him. But things got a little bit complicated, right? So they were literally en route to Texas when Mexico overthrew Spain. And the thing here is that Spain was pretty okay with slavery, but Mexico wasn't. They actually outlawed it eight years later. But Stephen Austin knew that Mexico's attitude towards slavery was going to be problematic for him and for the other 300 white families who wanted to go start plantations with him in East Texas because he knew that the white families were delicate, that they weren't going to want to clear that land on their own, and they certainly weren't going to want to tend it, that they were going to expect to have slaves do it for them. I've got a quote on there by the historian Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed, and she wrote a lovely little book if you want to read about Juneteenth. It's called On Juneteenth, and it's on Audible too. So they would hesitate to move to Texas without assurances that their property rights and enslaved people would be preserved. So Stephen Austin, what he did was he started strongly advocating to the Mexican government to try and find guarantees about their land ownership and the slave rights. And he was able to successfully obtain those. But here's the thing, Mexico said, okay, we will honor your property rights and we won't bother you about your slaves, but we are going to curb immigration. We are gonna stop it so that there aren't any more white people bringing their slaves into Mexico, right? They were like 300 families with slaves is enough. And so the shutting down of that immigration communicated to Stephen Austin and his fellow settlers that their situation was probably a little bit precarious so long as they remained part of Mexico. And this was one of the major reasons that Texas revolted against Mexico, 1935, or 1835 and 36, and declared themselves an independent nation, the Republic of Texas. You still see them flying that flag, right? It was to protect and maintain the institution of slavery. So not only did that 1836 constitution allow for slavery, it said this. So I, I put some of these historical documents in your handout just because they're a little bit thicker to read. Congress shall, this, by this, this is Texas Congress, shall pass no laws to prohibit immigrants from bringing their slaves into the Republic with them. In other words, you're free to come on, holding them by the same tenure by which such slaves were held in the United States, nor shall Congress have power to emancipate slaves, nor shall any slaveholder be allowed to emancipate his or her slaves without the consent of Congress. So in other words, Congress doesn't have the power to set slaves free. Slave owners can't set slaves free without the consent of Congress, which by the way, we just said they can't do that. And by the way, if you decide to go around and not get Congress's approval, we're just gonna say it's also illegal for free, uh, freed slaves to live here and we will deport them, right? So it's like, don't try and find a loophole. This is what we're doing. It's here to stay. Well, the Republic of Texas didn't last very long. It lasted about a decade. And there's lots of reasons for that, but probably the main one was that cotton prices crashed and then the white settlers there felt vulnerable to Mexico coming and taking them back over. 
right? Because they'd never recognized Texas as independence. So the Texans were like, what do we do? They started lobbying the United States to become part um, of the Union, which they assumed would protect their right to maintain slavery. And the U.S. finally said yes. There had been some hesitation because um, there was a lot of conversation about whether or not adding another slaveholding state into the Union uh, was wise at a time when it was growing precarious. But they went ahead and said yes, and when they did it, they had to fight the Mexican-American War to do it. And it was messy. In the end, Texas became a slaveholding American state. That's the bottom line. At that point, white people and their slaves started pouring into Texas, coming for free land, coming for what they assumed was going to be a safe haven for slavery, regardless of what was happening in the rest of the country, as abolition movements started to pick up steam. And so the number of enslaved peoples in the state over the next decade tripled to about 200,000. So you've got white wannabe plantation owners who are packing up and forcing their slaves to walk to Texas. And by 1860, black people comprised a third of the population of the state. Now, I think it's easy, too, to just like run across that, like, oh, okay, 200,000. Imagine two Michigan stadiums of slaves being forced to walk across the South in the humidity and the heat to go over to settle Texas and to clear the land. That's a lot of people and it's a lot of work to go through to maintain your slavery. When it became apparent that the institution of slavery was under fairly serious threat in the United States, Texas joined with the other southern states, they seceded from the Union, and they joined the Confederacy. And a few of those states issued what are called declarations of causes of succession. And so I actually just included a link because you can read every single one of those online for free. I just want to call out a couple of portions from Texas's to make a point, so just stick with me here. She, Texas, I don't love giving gendered things to states. They taught us not to do that <laughs> now, but she was received as a commonwealth holding, maintaining and protecting the institution known as Negro slavery, this servitude of the African to the white race within her limits, a relation that had existed from the first settlement of her wilderness by the white race and which her people intended should exist in all future time. In other words, from the first time white people settled here, it was for slavery, and that's what we intend for it to be. It goes on. That in this free government, and this is their emphasis is in the original, all white men are and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights. That the servitude of the African race, as exists in these states, is mutually beneficial to both bond and free, and is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience, the experience of mankind, and revealed by the will of Almighty Creator, as recognized by all Christian nations, which also isn't true because Britain had, had abolition in, anyway, 1833, I think. While the destruction of the existing relations between the two races as advocated by our sectional enemies would bring inevitable calamities upon both and desolation upon the 15 slaveholding states, thereby we succeed, blah, blah. In other words, they're going to take away slavery and we're livid, that's why we're leaving, right? They all name slavery, every single one of those causes of secession States' rights play only a little tiny bit, and the only reason they name them is because they want to maintain the right to uphold slavery, right? Just read them, and so probably nobody here is hearing this, but maybe you are from your family, but I'd say states' rights, my arse, right? It was about the protection of the white race and its entitlement to free land and free labor at the expense of the native nations and black people, and by divine law, they meant God-ordained law as they interpreted it. So, in fact, Texas fought with the Confederacy. And because Texas, you know, is geographically away from what was the center of the Civil War, 
it became this sort of haven over on the side for the southern slave owners um, to escape the fighting and go to a place where they were, where they were thinking that maybe abolition wouldn't be able to be enforced. So during the Civil War, just in those four years, the number of slaves brought to Texas nearly doubled. But meanwhile, in the middle of the war, President Lincoln issued an executive order that we know as the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring slaves in the Confederate states to be free. Now we note this did not free the slaves in the border states. That includes Kentucky, West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware. But it did free the slaves in the Confederacy, which would have included Texas. And what this allowed was for escaped slaves from the South to go and join the Union Army to fight for their own liberation, fight for the liberation of their people, and be paid for it. So technically, the slaves residing in Texas were legally free in 1863. But nobody was there to enforce it. So Southern plantation owners and their slaves just piled on into Texas. And it was two years later that Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant, and the war was declared over. But even at that point, fighting was still taking places in these little pockets, and some Southerners were just refusing to free their slaves. They're just like, who's going to make me? And it took the presence and the power of the U.S. Army to compel that liberation in many places. Right? And so at that point, slaves in Texas still didn't know that they were free more than two months after the end of the war. It was on that morning of June 19th, Juneteenth, 1865, Union Major General Gordon Granger sailed into Galveston. I'm like, somebody needs to make a poem if they haven't. General Gordon Granger into Galveston. Sailed in, 2,000 federal troops with him to enforce the freedom of the slaves in Texas. Legend has it, he read aloud General Order Number 3 from his balcony to a crowd of people below. It says this, People of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection therefore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. Now, there's no historical evidence that this was actually read out loud in front of a crowd. There's no photos, there's no diary mentions. It's much more likely that it was written on flyers and distributed throughout the city. It was put in churches and in public places and spread via word of mouth. And as it did, we know that black Texans rejoiced. We do have diary evidence of that. Black people gathering and singing and dancing and eating and celebrating their freedom in various parks and churches around the state. Meanwhile, some white Texans retaliated. In one town, they whipped dozens of freed slaves for celebrating. And so Gordon Reed says, all over the South, but in Texas particularly, whites unleashed a torrent of violence against the freed men and women, and sometimes the whites who supported them that lasted for years. There's the allies right there. Every Juneteenth going forward then, the black people of Texas commemorated what they initially called Jubilee Day, taken from the biblical Jubilee when slaves were to be set free. And it started, they think, mostly by being celebrated in churches and in parks. Eventually, it became known as Juneteenth. And so while slavery did not completely end in the border states of Delaware and Kentucky for another six months, with the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, Juneteenth was like a significant milestone of, like, it is finished. So why go through all that Texas history from the pulpit? I did it because I want us to understand how determined some people were to uphold slavery. Right? But it was the backbone of every decision made by the white Texans, and I would say a lot of white people throughout the United States. 
I want us to see how they clung to white supremacist theologies that told them that divine law supported their dominance and their oppression that they were exerting, irregardless of love your neighbor as yourself. I want us to see how freedom, even after it was officially and legally declared, wasn't enacted willfully by many people, and it was actively resisted by violence. Yeah, I was talking with a friend this week, and it wasn't about Juneteenth in particular. We were just kind of talking about politics. I was driving him to something. Um, he mentioned that he thought, you know, oh, one party, one political party is just fighting against the sort of natural journey toward more progressivism. I don't know why don't they, they don't just give up. It's just going to happen. You know, like greater human rights are sort of inevitable given enough time. I still might. They are not. Liberation and equal treatment are hard fought for, and they are hard won. And it ignores the tremendous courage and the work of so many people through the years to get those because power is not given up lightly and freedoms can go away if we don't guard what we have. All right, so to use the language of the Christian imagination, let's say the spirit of liberation was on the move that first Juneteenth. Right, I, I would call it the Holy Spirit, call it the spirit of love, call it the God of the oppressed. That was on the move, and alongside it, there was another spirit. I call it a spirit of bondage, right? And when I speak of spirits, I just mean like the activating spark or the motivation behind a group of people. Right? There was an Episcopal priest, Reverend Philip Brooks, who spoke at Lincoln's funeral, and he described slavery as a sacrament to that spirit of bondage. You know, so he says, slavery is like a ritual that was performed over and over again, like communion, that was pointing to the spirit of bondage for which it served. And I would say both of these spirits still exist today. And so even though plantation-style slavery is officially over, the spirit of that lives on. It was not completely defeated with the 13th Amendment. It morphed into different manifestations, from slavery to lynchings to Jim Crow laws to the prison-industrial complex, which we would say also has modern-day slavery, to over-policing, to Indian reservations and violations of tribal sovereignty and all of the other past and yet still present powers and principalities of white supremacy, which continue to haunt us today. And this spirit lives inside of us as a society. We just looked at the Minneapolis PD report that came out this week. It talked about the systemic racism that was so pervasive, which, you know, people knew, but it's, you, know, you have it codified in these hard numbers and you go, oh, there it is. Right? The sins of our forebears are in our systems, and they're in our laws, and they're in our policies, and they're in our practices, and they're in our neighborhoods. They're in which schools we fund and don't fund. We're in which schools we send our kids to and don't send our kids to. It's in who has access to clean air and to clean water and who does not, who receives better medical care. It's manifest in who is leading our businesses and our institutions and in who's able to get a loan and who is not. It's what is meant when somebody talks about systemic institutional racism, or it's sometimes called critical race theory. And these are just fancy words for history and for getting at the truth. And it is the truth that has the power to set us free. It's that place of rigorous honesty that we have to come to if we are going to come to terms with and truly heal the country's trauma and history. Right? And that's why Juneteenth is so important. It's why making it a federal holiday was necessary. It's a day that we can set aside to tell the truth about our shared history 
even if it makes us a little uncomfortable in the present, because it's what's required for us to have a more hopeful future. So I just want to encourage you. Some of you will have tomorrow off, some of you don't. If you do, celebrate Juneteenth. Tell your kids about Juneteenth. If you're white and you haven't celebrated it before, maybe start a new tradition. Rachel and I were talking about that in the last couple of weeks. It's like, we haven't really celebrated it. Maybe we come up with some sort of ritual that we do. I think we should always be trying to support black-owned businesses throughout the year, but maybe we go to like Cuppies or something out in Ipsy and we just do that. We just know like every Juneteenth week, that's like where we go and we're gonna have a meal to celebrate. Because we're celebrating not just the liberty of the black slave population of Texas in 1865, but we're celebrating the liberation that we are all working toward as we try and reckon with this national story and the ramifications, right? And we know that like both of those spirits have always been present, right? There were always people animated by the spirit of liberty, by the Holy Spirit. There were people, white people working for abolition, right? And so we just want to embrace that we want to be filled and motivated and animated by that spirit. That's the, that's the story we're telling. That's the joy that we want to be feeling, right? Second Corinthians says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, right? So we want to serve that spirit and where we serve that spirit and where there's liberty, there is joy and there is celebration, right? So dance and eat and celebrate with our friends and tell our story and that will be the path to healing. All right, I know I preached a little bit longer and we usually have a little bit of meditation, like silent meditation or guided meditation. And I do want to just take maybe a minute of silence. Just let the Holy Spirit talk to us. Maybe it's even about like, how can I celebrate? And people and babies make noise. I'll, I'll let us know when that's over. Holy Spirit, I ask that you fill us with joy as we celebrate Juneteenth tomorrow. I think sometimes, speaking as a white woman, it can be, you can get a little immobilized by just feeling sort of the guilt and the weight of it. I just want to say, Holy Spirit, come and shake that off and give us a spirit of joy and of liberation so that we are animated and excited by this because the spirit of, of liberty and the Holy Spirit of love should be bringing up bubbling hope within us. And so I ask that you would fill our hearts with that, that you would give us courage to speak the truth, that you would give us courage to look at things with honest eyes, 
that you would help break down those parts of the system that are so entrenched and so hard to permeate by your spirit for the sake of the oppressed. Help us to be part of that. In your name we pray, amen.